Well, I want to, as we start, I want to invite you to close your eyes. I don't keep them closed too long or I may lose you the rest of the morning here, but keep your eyes closed and I want to ask you a few questions. First one is this, where did you get your view of God? Where did it come from? Who taught you? Was it a parent or media, books, friends, a grandmother, church when you were a kid, reading the Bible? Where did you get your view of God? And the second question is this. Imagine that God is thinking about you right now. You are on His mind. What is the expression on His face as He thinks about you? Is it apathy? Disappointment? Approval? Anger? Frustration? Embarrassment? Love, awkwardness, distance? What is the look on his face as he thinks about you? And then the third question is, how do you know your previous answers, your two answers, how do you know those are true or not? Okay, go ahead and open your eyes. And if your neighbor doesn't open their eyes, please wake them up. Now, how you answer these three questions dramatically impacts your life maybe more than you think. A few years ago, I I met someone who was deathly afraid of flying on airplanes. And I asked this woman why, and she said, every time I turn on the news on CNN, all I see are plane crashes. And she said, it just freaks me out. I know it's not safe, and so I'm going to not go. Um, just drive everywhere. Now, I, I tried as best as I could to clearly and logically and rationally and unemotionally explain to her the logic behind that was probably not right. I said, do you realize that last year, ma'am, there were three billion people that flew on airplanes, over 20 or over 36 million different flights, and there was a total of 81 crashes, Okay. That's one crash for every 2.4 million flights. Then I said, but do you realize that when you drive on the road, nearly 1.3 million people die in road crashes every year. In fact, over 3,200 people die a day driving a car. 20 million to 50 million people are injured or disabled every year, even though they don't die from a car crash. And guns, by the way, kill as many people as cars in a given year. So I said, ma'am, I told her, I I said, it's way more dangerous for you to actually drive to the airport and be dropped off than for you to get on a plane and fly somewhere. Now I'm trying my best to just be really logical here with her on this. So I said, if you're really scared of dying, don't ever get in the car again. You know what she said to me? She looked in, her eyes got squinty, she leaned in and she pointed to me. She said, don't think you're going to change my mind by giving me the facts. You know, it's, a, it's amazing to me how often we live in the midst of misconceptions. 
Misconceptions dominate our lives. In fact, sometimes we have misconceptions because we simply don't understand, right? We're unintelligent, and when we find the things out, maybe we can change that, but we live in these misconceptions because of unintelligence. But there's a second category that I find incredibly intriguing about misconceptions, and like the woman that I met, people that live in misconceptions because they don't want to know and even when they know, they still choose to live in the misconceptions because they believe their life would be easier even living by the misconceptions even though they know something else. And sometimes we can chuckle at some of those innocent misconceptions, but sometimes our misconceptions are incredibly significant. In fact, there isn't an area that's more significant regarding our misconceptions than how we think about God. And that's what we're going to be looking at this summer, is to explore ultimately one significant question, and that's what is God actually like? What is God actually like? Now, how do we know that to be true is the follow-up to that, but what is God actually like? like? And there are lots of competing images in our culture today as to who God is or what God is like, and so this summer we're going to explore some of those popular cultural misconceptions and those implications that they have on our lives and on our culture if we continue in those misconceptions. So I want to just be really clear here as we start the series that this is for two groups of people. The first group of people that this series is for are those of you who are unsure, unsure of what to make of God. You maybe believe there's a God, you're not sure what to do with Him, you're, you're aware maybe He's there, or maybe you don't believe there's a God, um, but you're at least intrigued enough and open enough, or maybe you, you think this is a safe enough place for you to actually explore that a little bit further with us. Uh, and then a second group of people, those who would self-identify as followers of God or believers in God, and you would say renew is your home, and you want to enter into this time further, just like you would uh, many other weeks of the year. But I'm really hoping that this summer, that both groups of people are surprised by what we find. Now, whatever group you're in, I hope that we find ourselves saying, wow, I, I didn't realize that. Or maybe that was a misconception I didn't know I had. Or maybe it was a misconception I had, and I was willing to dig my heels in like that woman, uh, but I'm willing to actually enter into a new way of thinking. And as we begin the series, I just want to be really blunt with you, just bluntly forthright with you on four things. So let me, let me start with this one. Uh, the first one is this. You are going to be disappointed with the series. You are. The reason being is there are lots of misconceptions. We're not even going to get to all the major misconceptions that might be out there, but you're going to be disappointed. I'm just going to tell you that. There may be times you get defensive or uncomfortable or emotional, or you say, I, I can't do that. I can't go there. Or you're going to squirm. But I'm just going to say, don't be surprised. You're going to be disappointed. The second thing is that I want you to keep in mind that God's character, who God is, is way more clear and way more mysterious than we could ever fully understand. To try to explain the divine is both good to do and impossible to do at the same time. So I just want to be really clear. It is more clear and it is more mysterious than any of us fully realize. And the third is this. I want to just tell you right up front where we want to arrive. I was talking to Lisa Gribben right before the gathering started this morning, and she just said, hey, I, you know, I think this is a great series to help clear the air on who God isn't. And I'm like, that's a great way to describe it. That, that's what we want to do, is clear the air and pull the curtain back on who God is not so that we can actually see who He really is. So that I hope that by the end of this 
this series that we can see the true God for who He truly is. Because when we see the real God on His terms and not on ours, it unleashes something amazing in our souls and in our lives and in our relationships and in the broken world we live in. And here's the last one. The people who misrepresent the character of God contribute to our misconceptions. Maybe for those of you who would describe yourself as not a follower of God, you can't fully believe in God, you say, part of it is I'm so confused because I thought God was like this, but I see God's followers act like that. And if that's you, as someone who has been called as part of my vocation to speak in many ways, to communicate who God is, I don't always do that well. And there are times that uh, I cause or contribute to some of that confusion. And so if you've been hurt by that or you've been confused by that because of things in my own life, I just need to confess that to you. I need to say I'm sorry. I need to ask for your forgiveness for the ways in which I have represented poorly this God of the universe that's added to your misconceptions. But in my repentance and confession and and asking your forgiveness, I also want to challenge you with something in that too. That despite the poor behavior of Christians and my own bad behavior, I would ask that you would not allow God to be guilty by association. (laughs) Poor representation of God through the fault of His followers, Christians, doesn't take away from who God actually is. Let me say that again. Poor representation by followers of God doesn't take away from who God actually is. It doesn't change it. But I just want to challenge you with that. So why is it important that we have an accurate view of who God is? One of my favorite quotes was said by uh, someone about 100 years ago by the name of A.W. Tozer. And he said this, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This doesn't relate to religious people. This relates to all people. What you think about God will determine so much of your life. Why you get out of bed, how you treat people, how you handle money, how you think about the purpose and goal of your life, how you think about your hopes and dreams, how you think about the hopes and dreams of your children. Plain and simple, your beliefs about God determine how you live every day in your life. In fact, you can't not live this way. But if we're not careful, our idea of God can be nothing more than an exaggerated version of yourself. The philosopher Blaise Pascal said this, that God created man in his own image and then man returned the favor. (laughs) Because we can so easily project onto God our own feelings and our own hopes and expect God to be that for us. Uh, Brad Jerzak said, unhealthy ideas about God are often rooted in the bitterness of our own hearts. People instinctively push their highest expectations and and deepest disappointments onto God, especially when their hearts are somehow afflicted with sorrow. These projections form a broken image of God. 
What you think about God impacts all of your life. And when we don't think about God accurately and we turn him into our own image, it sets us up with a broken idea of who God is and the trajectory of our lives is skewed right from the start. Which means that this series, as I've been hoping and praying for the last several weeks, is important and influential for every one of us. Because we all have different starting points with God, we have to ask the question, like Blaise Pascal, have we created God in our own image? And if so, where? And if so, what do we do about that? You know, occasionally I'll have someone who's not a very religious person uh, find out that I'm a pastor and want to talk to me about God or faith or religion. And about six months ago, I was flying somewhere and someone asked me what I did. And I said, I'm a pastor. And uh, this man said, can I, can I just be really honest with you? And I said, sure. He said, uh, I just can't bring myself to believe in God. And I said, well, tell me, who, who do you think, who do you believe God is? What is God like? And he said, well, God's very close-minded. He's very judgmental. He's angry. He's aloof. He's distant. He loves some people, not other people. And because of the things that I've done, which he said, I'm not going to tell you, but they're bad enough that I know God can't love me. And uh, so I just can't bring myself to believe in God. And I said to him, I can't bring myself to believe in that God either. The God of many of our narratives is not a God worthy of our trust. So we have to explore the way that we think. So we're going to back up just a little bit and actually think about our narratives, the narratives that we have. We all have narratives that we live into. You have personal narratives. You have family narratives. You have cultural narratives. Uh, you have religious or spiritual narratives. The narrative is the central function of the human mind. Everything you do has to make sense in the midst of a story. And if it doesn't, you'll make up a story to make sure that your life makes sense. That's how our brains work. Right? How many times have we been like, well, when you said that, well, that's not what I meant. I meant that. Oh, you meant that? Right? That we sometimes get our stories off, and then we end up in some difficult situations. And Jim Smith wrote this. He said, we are shaped by our stories. In fact, our stories, once in place, determine much of our behavior without regard of their accuracy or helpfulness. Once these stories are stored in our minds, they stay there largely unchallenged until we die. And here is the main point. These narratives are running and often ruining our lives, and that is why it's crucial to get the right narratives. Now, for many of us, it's the, the, the best and wisest thing we can do is to identify what are false narratives in our lives and to change those to what is an accurate, true narrative that is the best thing any of us can do ever in our lives in whatever we do. And there are narratives that we live into of who God is. And regardless of whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, there are false narratives that we have around God. I'm not making this up. I'm sitting on the porch just before 9 o'clock this morning going over my notes one last time before coming here. And, I, and uh, I, I hear someone yell my name out on the path. If you've been to my house, you know our porch runs right by the sidewalk. And uh, someone said my name, and I looked up, and it was my barber, Tom. And he was walking the neighborhood early, and he said, you're going over your notes for your sermon. And I said, yes. He said, are you going to preach hell, hellfire and brimstone today? <laughs> and he was sort of kidding, sort of not. And I said, nope, I'm just 
I'm just going to invite people into a Jesus life like every week. But I realized Tom's got some misconceptions. Even in his question, this morning at 9 o'clock, walking by, there are misconceptions with Tom. I've asked numerous people who aren't very religious what they think about God. And by the way, I'd rather ask non-Christians that. The reason being is they're much more honest with me than Christians are. Um, and non-Christians are willing to say, hey, this is what I think about it. And I've noticed a few categories or buckets or main ideas when I ask non-Christians, what do you think about God or who is God? And of those main buckets, one of the most prevalent misconceptions, either that they articulate or that they describe, not using these words, but would summarize what they do, is that God is a good luck charm. God is a good luck charm. Or maybe another way to, to put it is, God is our personal assistant. He's a genie in a bottle. He's a self-help expert. Maybe he's a nice hood ornament on our car. He's not the, the engine, but it's a nice enhancement to have that it can impress people with this sort of add-on enhancement. And this isn't just for those who aren't followers of God, believers of God, by the way. There's a sociologist by the name of of Christian Smith, and he sought out to ask teenagers about 10 years ago, 3,000 teenagers, what do you think about God? And he took all the data and he, he summarized it, and he came up with these five things that he found, five main themes. One is that of these teenagers, that there's a God who exists, who's to, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then lastly, that good people go to heaven when they die. These are the dominating figures, uh, that the themes that came out of interviewing 3,000 teenagers. And he wrote a book called Soul Searching, the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers. Basically, what he found is that most teenagers were open to religion. They were okay with it. Uh, this was what they thought, but they treated God as an add-on to their lives, an enhancement there to pull out when I need him most. And Christian Smith dubbed this moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, don't get all tripped up in those fancy words. I'll explain those for you briefly. But he called it the new American religion. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, be really good. That's the goal of life. That's how we enhance our relationship with God. Therapeutic, it's for my own happiness. Deism. Deism is believing there is a God, but God's really distant. He created the world, but kind of stands off on the side. You know that old Bette Midler song, From a Distance, right? It's like a real beautiful song. But if you listen to the lyrics, what she's saying is, God is this impersonal God who lives really far away from everybody else and leaves us alone. Beautiful song, really inaccurate misconception about who God is. So moralistic, therapeutic deism. If I could summarize moralistic, therapeutic deism, it's... God is a good luck charm. God's there to help me get 
my goals and my fantasies and my preferences accomplished in the world. Therefore, when things are going well, I don't need God. And when things are bad, then I cry out, where are you? How could this happen? I thought you were good. The mindset goes like this too. If I do well, if I'm kind, maybe if I'm religious, maybe if I pray some more and read my Bible more, I'm sure God will bless me. But if I'm mean or I cheat on my taxes or I haven't prayed for a month or I don't ever read my Bible or I've skipped church a lot, well, God's probably going to punish me. Now we can easily look at primitive tribal cultures doing some things, some strange things, right? And we need it to rain. And so they, they do this tribal dance and they yell and they cut themselves and trying to appease to the gods, right? And this superstitious sort of element. But do you realize we don't dance for rain or cut ourselves, but we do the same thing. We can treat God as a superstitious figure, a rabbit foot for what we want for our lives. Uh, this is how it came out in my own life. I remember distinctly this happening uh, in two um, clear ways when I was in high school. When I was a, a teenager on Saturday nights, I used to think that God would be less angry with me if I sinned at 11.57 p.m. on Saturday night than at 12.03 Sunday morning. The reason being is, well, hey, Sunday's the day we go to church. My family goes to church on Sunday. So if I sin, like, Saturday night, he'll be less mad with me than if I do it Sunday morning. So what did I do? I just sinned earlier in the night. <laughs> True. Why? Because I was viewing God as a good luck charm. I, I played basketball in high school, and I was part of an AAU uh, travel basketball team throughout the state of Virginia. We'd go on these tournaments. We were pretty good. Several guys on my team ended up playing Division I ball, and one guy went to the NBA. We had a blast and, and uh, great stuff. None of them were interested in God. None of them were religious. Um, they knew I was, and, and they sort of poked fun at me about that. I, I distinctly remember, though, every game, my coach would say right before, we'd be in the locker room right before we went out for warm-ups, had our warm-ups on, we had our balls under our arms, and he'd say, everybody, everybody pull it in. We'd pull it in the locker room. He'd say, all right, time for the Lord's Prayer. Okay? I'm thinking, none of these guys are going to know the Lord's Prayer. Shocked, they all say the Lord's Prayer real humbly. And, our Father, who art in heaven, saying it, amen. And then we ran out on the court. Like, I'm, I'm really confused here. So after a few different tournaments, I, I pulled Coach Bloxham aside, and I said, Coach, I'm just really curious. Why do we do that? And his response to me was very interesting. It's for good luck. Maybe you won't get injured today. Maybe we'll come out on top today. Who knows? Let's see. That's why we said the Lord's Prayer. Aren't there times we do this with God? Maybe not that blatant, but we do that with God. We want God to give us something, and when he gives us blessing after blessing, but not what we want him to, we think he doesn't love us. So here's the bad news. If God is our good luck charm, then there are several things we'll always be tempted to believe. One of them is that nothing we could do will ever satisfy him at all times. And therefore, we're always on the hamster wheel trying to figure out how do I be good enough to make sure that I'm on his good side so that when the genie pops out, he'll say, I'll give you three prayer requests, I mean three wishes. 
The other thing is that we can constantly live in fear and anxiety, if God is our good luck charm, in trying to please God to grant us the wishes so that we can do what we want. The other thing is it puts us at the center of our own stories. Right? This is about me. God, you help me. You are the ornament, the hood ornament to my car, and therefore I'm the star. I'm the star of my own life. The other bad news is that we'll be angry if God doesn't give us exactly what we want. And finally, and maybe most severely, when we treat God like a good luck charm, our relationship with God will always be transactional. It'll never be personal. You know, you hear about you know, genie in the bottle and all those stories. No one ever says, I just have an incredibly close and intimate relationship with my genie. The genie is purely there for transactional, impersonal reasons. God will always seem transactional if we treat him as a good luck charm. It will never be this personal, loving relationship that he actually intends for us. A few years ago, shortly after Halloween, maybe this has happened to you parents, my sons devised a plan. They brought a proposal before Megan and I and said that they wanted to eat just a plate full of candy for dinner. Megan and I laughed, of course, and said, no way, and they responded by melting down. As some of you know, Carter is a little more passionate or emotional than, uh, than Bennett is, and so he just went on and on, you guys are the worst parents ever. And they did something that's hard for adoptive uh, parents to hear. I wish I were in a different family, right? And you guys are the worst. I thought you loved us, right? It's on and on and on. See, in their minds, we were simply evil parents. They wouldn't have articulated this way, but they viewed us as moralistic, therapeutic parents. We've been good. Make us happy. Give us what we want. And we weren't going to be moralistic, therapeutic parents because we don't want a transactional relationship with Carter and Ben. We want a personal, loving relationship where they grow up healthy and they grow up strong. And so you can have a little bit of candy, but you're not going to have candy, all candy for dinner. Why? We didn't give it to them. We, we, we did not give them what they wanted when they wanted it. And instead of being a bad parent, we're convinced we did it because we love them. What if God wasn't a good luck charm for your life? What if God didn't give you everything that you wanted when you wanted it, and that was great news? What if that was great news? What if he's good and generous and trustworthy, but he loves us enough not to give us what we long to have? I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 13. We're going to look at a unique passage of what Jesus said about his father. Jesus is clearing up some misconceptions of what some religious people had about who God was. This is, an, this is not a passage that I have read often or ever preached on, but it is an important one. Luke 13, 1-5 says this, but now there were some present at that time who were told 
who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Some of you are thinking, what? What's that about? It's one of the few times that Jesus actually talks about current events. So there's this gruesome story, Galileans are with Pilate, and you know, mixing blood together with sacrifices. And this tower falls. This tragic situation, this architectural fail happens, and 18 people die just like that. Jesus is asked to address this particular current event. And in verse 1, what the people are implying is that they have an inaccurate view of God as a good luck charm. Shouldn't these people get it worse off? They're bad luck kinds of people, aren't they? They, they, should, they should pay for it. Well, Jesus then ups it some more and says, how about the bad luck that came on those people? The tower fell. What about that bad luck? Two incidences, two current events. Both times, Jesus, he asks a question, and then he talks about repentance. He asks a question, he talks about repentance. Now, so when you hear the word repent, maybe there's all sorts of angry people picketing, maybe that's what you think in your mind. The word repent just simply means to do a U-turn in your thinking, to do a mental U-turn, to think differently about your way of life. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, this misconception you all have, I'm challenging you, think differently than you thought before. I want you to totally reorient the way in which you live your life and how you think about God. What is Jesus after? Jesus is after trying to confront people's misconception that God is a good luck charm. Now, later in Matthew chapter 5, in this Sermon on the Mount, he talks about how rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. What is he saying? He's saying that the people that are unrighteous, you know, well, well God's just going to punish them. And the people that are righteous, God's going to honor them. He said, good and bad happens in the world, right? Sometimes bad things happen to wonderful people and wonderful things happen to bad people. It's not this genie in a bottle, good luck, bad luck thing. As I read this story this week in Luke 13, I... I just thought of this question. Isn't it great that we don't serve a God who gives us everything that we want when we want it? Isn't it great that we serve a God that isn't trying to dole out luck and unluck for people in the world? What if instead of a good luck charm or a genie in a bottle or a rabbit's foot, that the God of the universe was not only powerful and in charge, but ultimately involved in your life. And what if that God loved you more than to simply dole out impersonal prayer requests or wishes for you to achieve your personal fantasies? 
And what if God loved you enough not to give you what you thought you actually wanted? And what if instead God wanted to be your friend who didn't hand out three wishes but gave you his presence all of the time, every day, for the rest of your life? Here's the good news. God is the good and merciful and human befriending God. God is a good and merciful and human befriending God. We think we want God as a good luck charm or a genie in a bottle. But here's the deal. If that were to ever be true, we would be so royally disappointed we'd be bitter. We would have gotten what we wanted like my boys wanted a plate full of candy for dinner. And it would have left us in a worse place. So here's the thing that we learn about God. How do we know about this invisible God, this mysterious God? Well, Paul gives us incredibly encouraging words in Colossians chapter 1. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know about this invisible God? Look to Jesus, who's visible, who's human, who came to be among us. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. That's why here at Renew we're so obsessed with Jesus. Because we believe that when we find out who Jesus is, we find out more about who God is and who he really is. How do we know what God is like? We look to Jesus for our answer. You know, Jesus was many things, but one thing when you look through the Gospels that you'll never find is that the people he interacted with, not one of them walked away and said, man, he's just like my good luck charm. Not one ever accused him of being a good luck charm. So I'm going I'm to say something slowly, and I'm going to say it again because I think it's this important. I challenge you in this series, I want to invite you to reject any view of an unchrist-like God. Sounds a little backwards, doesn't it? I want to challenge you to reject any view of an unchrist-like God. Any view of God that looks different than who Jesus is. Just say, forget it. It's not true. It's not true. Now, we'll unpack this a bit more in our house churches this summer and the coming weeks. And there's so much more I could stay, say, but I, I need to put on the brakes here and press pause. But I'm excited for the rest of the summer in this. But I want to challenge you if you're just saying, if I'm really honest, if you really knew me, you would know that my faith really is weak. I, I struggle all the time with being being like really in with God and, and putting my faith in Him and then doubting it and, and really trusting Him for who He is but then returning to some of these misconceptions. I just feel like my faith is so weak. I just want to encourage you with this. A strong faith in something weak is far worse than a weak faith in something strong. I would much rather you have a weak faith in a strong God than for you to have a strong faith in a weak, misaligned view of God. So here's my challenge for us this summer as I land the plane here, hopefully not <laughs> crashing it. Journey with us this summer 
I know summer can be a time where we're, we're in and out and on vacation and have things going on. And, but I want to challenge you to lean in. And here's what I mean by that. Engage with us this summer. Talk about what we just talked about. In fact, in just a minute when we break for intermission, there's going to be a slide up on the screen. Just allow us during our time of intermission to interact further with this topic. Email questions to Doug and me. Talk to people in your house church. Be whatever level of honesty of honest you've been in your house church. Be more honest this summer than you've been. Let me challenge you to lean in there. Engage in discussion. We'll have some Facebook interaction as well on our Facebook page. Feel free to chime in on some of those as well. The other thing we're thinking about doing is uh, uh, Round Guys uh, Brewery is just around the corner here and picking a night in the next two weeks. Just saying, hey, appetizers are on us. And if you guys want to come and just interact around this topic some more, just to, to further the conversation, we want to invite you uh, to do that further. So be, be looking for that uh, as we move in, into the future. The other thing is on your seat, we don't want to walk out of here with any of those cards. We want you to take those postcards because we know you probably have friends at, at work that maybe you've engaged in conversation with. I'm going to take one to my barber uh, and invite him. And on the back of that sheet lists, on the front not only lists the topics, but on the back lists the dates uh, and has our address and, and uh, website name and things like that. So who's that person or those extended family members or a colleague or a neighbor um, that you could take. You need more, you let us know, we'll give them to you. But just who could you personally invite to engage in conversation with further on this? But as we engage with this further, I hope more than anything this summer that, that our prayer is this simple. And even if you don't pray, and by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you don't pray, by the way, it's totally normal. I, I, I just recently read uh, something this week that said atheists admit to praying on occasion 40%. 40% of atheists admit to praying regularly, which I found to be a little bit puzzling, but kind of interesting. So no, even if you say, I don't really pray that much, I don't even believe in God, I just want to challenge you, pray this way. Even if you say, I don't even know who I'm praying to, just pray this. God, just show me who you are, really. Who are you, really? This summer, I just we're going to get a true picture of who you are. I want to know the real, true God, and I want to live in the truth, and I don't want to live by these misconceptions of these false narratives. Just, God, show me what you're really like. Just pray that. Pray that. And as we end, let me pray that for us. God, thanks for, uh, for not being a, a good luck charm. Uh, Lord, forgive me uh, for the times that uh, I actually treat you that way and how that transactional relationship must disappoint you when you pursue me and you love me and you sent your son and you lay down your life for me. And I still want to, I still wonder, did I rub the genie bottle correctly enough to have you pop out and grant me what I want? Lord, maybe some of us who've grown up in the church are just now realizing, uh, man, this idea of, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Maybe they're realizing this is how they've lived in their relationship with you for so long. And maybe this is a morning where you're breaking through to them and inviting them to a deeper relationship than they've had before. And God, even though this may make us uncomfortable to talk about some of these things or make us squirm or 
cause us to think on a deeper level than maybe we've thought before. I pray, God, that you'd meet us in that. Show us those misconceptions and help us to replace the false narratives with the Jesus narrative because we know that you're a very Christ-like God. And as we see more of who you are, what do we go, that's a life I want to enter into. That has implications on my life. Lord, help us to be courageous. Help us to enter in to see these things in conversation and in times with you, maybe on walks or when we're in traffic or, or talking with our roommates or our spouses. Because we want to live as people in the truth. And we don't want to be left living by misconceptions that would harm us, harm our relationship with you, or harm other people or the world in which we live. Thanks for clearing up through your son that when walls fall and people die tragically, that it's not a good luck, bad luck thing. It's that you want us to rethink our way of thinking, to pull a U-turn, and to live in the true version of you rather than in the false one. Help us to do that this summer. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.